Hi, I'm Sammy, and welcome to episode 7 of Hey Chef. In today's episode, we are talking to Chef John Shields, who is often referred to as the culinary ambassador of the Chesapeake Bay. He has co-owned Gertrude's, located in the Baltimore Museum of Art, for over 20 years. He is a cookbook author and TV personality. We talk about the influence of his grandmother Gertie, the environmental impacts of humans on the Chesapeake Bay, how to write a cookbook, and our favorite farmer's market on 32nd Street. So, let's get into it. Here is Hey Chef. Hi, Chef. So happy to have you on the show. Well, I'm glad to be here. I'm delighted. Okay, uh, let's just get into it. I ordered from Gertrude's curbside, and I got the Gertie's Crab Cake, which I believe that's your grandmother's, right? That's correct. Yeah, that was Gertie's recipe. It was really great. Like, the seasonings were, like, spot on. It was just perfect. Is there any way you can tell me what's in it? And the crab? Oh, absolutely. Oh, it's okay. n- no secret. I <laughs> put it out there in the in the whole world. It's in... in I think definitely one, one if not two of my cookbooks. Um, okay. It has mayonnaise. It has uh, dry mustard, uh, Worcestershire sauce, Tabasco, um, a little bit of Old Bay, uh, some lemon juice, saltine crackers, and a little parsley. And I think that's it. I think that's all that's in there. Okay. Yeah, I know some people use Ritz as well, like Ritz crackers. Yeah, Ritz, Ritz yeah. is good. It gives it kind of a buttery flavor mm-hmm. as well when you use the Ritz crackers. Uh, Gertie used to always like to use the saltines. Some people mm. like breadcrumbs. Some people like the panko, mm. um, all of which work fine. I just kind of more out of a tradition, you know, have been yeah. using the saltines. And it also, uh, as in the name, it, it adds a little bit more salt and a little bit more flavor to it as well. Yeah, very good. Delicious. And my mom had the pan-fried chicken meal. Which is also, all right. Yeah, it was also, <laughs> it was also great. Like the seasonings on that were really great as well. I think you put you put Old Bay in that as well, right? Yeah, there's a little bit of Old Bay in that too. You know, there's kind of like some poultry seasonings and uh, thyme and peppers, number of different peppers and stuff. And we uh, marinate the chicken for at least 24 hours, mm. sometimes 48 hours before we uh, fry it off. I can tell. Yeah, you got a lot of flavor in that. So Gertrude's, you guys serve uh, Chesapeake cuisine. Can you sort of like explain what that is? You know, that's a good question. People (laughs) people ask that of me often because, you know, I've been doing this for like close to 50 years. And whenever I travel anywhere, people always say, so what is Chesapeake food? They always know of crabs. Mm -hmm. Um, They're not quite sure where the bay is, but they Mm -hmm. know about the crabs. Of course. Um, So I, I generally, when I'm talking about Chesapeake food... I talk about it as a region. You know, we're talking about a whole region. And a great description was when Captain John Smith first sailed into the Chesapeake, I'm 16, whatever it was, 30 <laughs> something. He kept diaries and he wrote that when they sailed into the bay, the fish were so thick, we attempted to catch them with frying pans. Oh, yeah. I so read that I in your think book. <laughs> that, that sums up what Chesapeake cooking is about. It's simple food, but from some of what I think some of the best ingredients of anywhere that I've found. And that doesn't just mean seafood. You know, it Mm -hmm. means everything that connects to the bay, whether it be our cheeses, it can be, you know, our chicken, 
our um, meat and our vegetables and the produce and the fruit. It all comes together. Mm. But the one commonality that I found, and if you look at any old Chesapeake cookbook or you can look Mm. at my cookbooks, (laughs) it's very simple. We let the flavor of our region just shine through because the product is so good. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. And well, yeah, the product is so good, but there are a lot of things harming it as well. Um, oh yeah, yeah, and you and you've you've done a lot uh, to try to educate people about the environmental impacts. Can you talk about some of the major issues like harming Chesapeake? Yeah, I mean it's a really complex set of things, and I, obviously we're not unique. You know, you'll find this in in major food sheds and and watersheds around the country, but you know we live in an area that is becoming more and more heavily populated. It puts a lot of stress on the bay. Um, We put a lot of things in there we shouldn't be putting in there. Um, We're also located, we're in a weird place. So uh, a lot of the power plants, uh, most of those are coal fired, Mm. are all right across the Appalachian Mountains uh, in Pennsylvania, in um, West Virginia, in Ohio. And so anyway, all those um, residue come across and often they get trapped over the bay. So it's putting a lot of pollutants into the bay right there. Then we have the whole idea of climate change, global Mm -hmm. warming, climate change. Uh, When I first did my first series on the Chesapeake, you know, I was researching that back in the early 1990s. And when I would go down to Dorchester County in those days, there were big forests um, Mm -hmm. everywhere right right by Blackwater Wildlife Preserve. Okay. And I go down there now and most of those forests are dead because wow. of the rising sea levels. Uh, you know, it's not something that's going to happen. It's happening yeah. right it's now. Happening. Yeah. And so what happens, there was a recent article, I think it was in the Baltimore Sun the other day, talking about how those rising sea levels have altered agriculture down there so much because once the land becomes saturated with seawater, it can no longer be used for growing. Um, So we have that on there. And then we have the whole idea of overproducing some things. Like we became known as the chicken capital. Well, I'm telling you, when you have too many animals in a small space, things don't go so well. (laughs) I mean, you got the, it's not best for the health of the animals and it's definitely not good for the health of the environment. So anyway, we have challenges, you know, kind of in every direction. And I think that our actions today, the way that we decide to live and the way we decide to cook can have a tremendous impact on those, not only problems, but solutions. Mm. So that that's where I'm going these days working on and what I'm getting out there and trying to talk about. Okay. Yeah, you mentioned the chicken. Um, I'm assuming you're talking about uh, CAFOs, which are, for people who don't yes. know, concentrated animal feeding operations. So yeah, I was learning a lot about those in my environmental science class uh, this year and about how all of their, their fecal matter, it can run into the bay and cause eutrophication you know if it's causing eutrophication? Yes. It is? it is? Okay. Yeah. Yeah, so for people who do not know, eutrophication is just when excess nutrients goes into water and algae feeds on that, creating a mat of algae, 
And so when the nutrients is gone, the algae dies out. So the decomposers eat the algae. And then the decomposers take up all the oxygen, which it kills the plants and all the animals inside the water. And then there's a cycle. It just keeps happening and happening and happening because the algae grows back because there's more nutrients from the bacteria. So, yeah, nice little fact. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> it's a challenge. It's a big challenge. Mm-hmm. Definitely. So can we talk about solutions to these problems? Sure. Um, I mean... I think that we all have to be mindful of what's going on and to accept this is what's happening. You know, if you don't name a problem and if you don't recognize a problem, you can't do anything about it because, you know, we just put blinders on. So I, I think that we really need to, you know, be clear and be honest about what is happening and a lot of our actions, the way that we live, uh, the way we consume, you know, factor that in. So we could go from, you know, we should bike more, we should drive less. Uh, If you're going to drive, use a a car that is in a big burner of uh, fossil fuels, because that's all part of it. The other part of it is raising large scale agriculture, like you were just talking about, puts a great stress on the bay. So I look at it as when we make our food choices, especially when we're making our food choices around animal protein, that we start to look at how we used to cook. Mm-hmm. We could not afford meat the way that we afford meat now. That was something that was only for the super wealthy. Yeah. Uh, the people that worked the land, the people that you know uh, didn't have the money. They basically lived on a plant-forward diet. They ate, you know, lots of potatoes and rice and vegetables and so forth and so on. I was talking to this guy. Here's a good example of it. His name is Alva Crockett. Mm -hmm. He was the four-time mayor of Tangier Island down in Virginia in the Bay. And um, he was talking about growing up on Tangier Island. and, And they were poor. You know, they didn't have a whole lot of money. And um, even the fish that they caught, they were trying to sell that so that the family would have money. So he said that they had this one big pot that his mom would use to make, and it was called 50 clam chowder. (laughs) So what they did, it was a huge, huge pot, and she would fill it with onions and potatoes and celery and bring that all up. And then she would take about 50 clams. She would take the juice after she shucked it Mm -hmm. and put it in there. So that was your stock. And uh, then she would chop those up. She would put that in. And then she made biscuits, kind of like drop biscuits. And she would put it on top of that. She called them doughboys and put a lid on it. And they would puff all up. Hmm. So what happened then is that she could feed the whole neighborhood Uh big bowls of soup. It was rich in primarily potatoes, but you were getting your a lot of protein from the chopped up clams. So I look at that just like I look look at a vegetable crab soup mm-hmm. where, you know, we go make one of those Maryland crab soups. We go over to the farmer's market. We get the onions, tomatoes, the corn, mm-hmm. the lima beans, the whole enchilada, mm-hmm. and we make a huge pot and we take some uh, crab bodies to flavor it, to make a stock. And then we put some crab meat in at the end and you can turn that into a whole meal. So what did we just do? We stretched 
the protein mm. and we stretch the protein with lots of starches and vegetables. And so I call that bay and body friendly food. Mm. It takes some stress, environmental stress off the bay and takes some um, nutrient stress off of the bay. And it's good for our bodies. It's the way we were designed to eat and have always eaten. Yeah. So I'm really out there pushing for, I'm not talking about specifically any, a vegetarian diet. Mm -hmm. I'm talking about a plant forward diet nice. where we're taking that protein and using it in the best way that we can and stretch it out. I see. Yeah. And they, and um, people around the world have been doing this for a long time. And I feel like Americans just haven't been like, really doing that as much i feel like in asia um they use the whole animal uh to the fullest extent by making stocks just like you were saying and we just take the flank steak or whatever and we just fry it up and we cook it and then the whole animal is just gone yeah yeah it's true and you know one of the things that that's interesting to me and we we can look at it from that perspective of you can go to the grocery store and they have them great big packs with 24 chicken legs mm -hmm. and then 24 chicken thighs. Um, now, a better approach, I would suggest, if we're going to look at kind of a plant forward, is like my grandmother Gertie would do. Mm -hmm. um, a lot of my relatives around here in Baltimore County were farmers. Mm -hmm. And um, we also, right down the street from where she lived, her local grocer, this is right in the city, mind mm -hmm. you. He had a whole like barnyard of um, chickens all running around. And every week we would get a fresh chicken for the family. Hmm. So let's say on Sunday, the chicken would get roasted. Mm -hmm. And we had a lot of kids and we had aunts and uncles and everybody. But we get mm -hmm. one chicken. It was a nice sized chicken. Gertie would roast it. She'd make a stuffing or dressing to go with it. She'd have mashed potatoes. She'd have boiled carrots. She'd have parsnips. She'd have turnips. She'd have lima beans. She'd have mm -hmm. sauerkraut. So when she set that table, you had the beautiful chicken that was roasted and then, then all these vegetables. And then she would make um, breads to go with it. Mm -hmm. And so you might have 12 people at that table or 10 people at that table. And we had one chicken. Wow miraculously everybody got a nice plate full sometimes with seconds and then the next day i'd come home and gertie would have picked everything off of that carcass and she made chicken salad wow so you would have chicken salad for lunch the next day on wednesday she would take the carcass and all kinds of fresh vegetables that she had around and she turned it into a chicken soup and she made wow. all of her noodles homemade she'd roll them out on the table put that in and that became a whole nother dinner That's so awesome. what i'm saying is we have one chicken feeding all these people and it's like you say you're using every part she would use the chicken livers sometimes she would make that she would save those and freeze them when she had enough we would have sauteed chicken livers for dinner with rice and she would put sherry in it and cream but you were using every part of the animal and you stretched it out. And I really see, you know, we have to put one foot in the past to see our way to the future. And so I'm really thinking if we're going to live here and live in the Bay and live from our region, this is the approach we're going to need to take. Yeah, definitely. hundred percent. That's awesome.
using that one chicken to feed all those people. Wow, for three yeah. days. That's that's awesome. So you have uh, around four to five cookbooks, um, and I actually I have the uh, the new Chesapeake. Cookbook oh, good, <laughs> good. I'm glad you have it. Yeah, yeah, that that has a lot of the information that you and I are just mm-hmm. talking about. I mm-hmm. wanted that one to kind of take a look, a snapshot. Where are we right now? Yeah. You know, let's name it where we are right now. And then what can we do? Um, so, no, I'm glad I'm glad that you have that one. <laughs> yeah, it's awesome. Like the pictures are amazing. The uh, recipes are awesome. I actually last night I made the uh, the Baltimore peach cake. Uh, oh, good. From, yeah, yeah, that's that, I, I that was, love that. That was great. <laughs> uh, yeah. So I uh, me and my sister, we wrote a cookbook and it only had 10 recipes, but it was it was a lot of work. I mean, I can't imagine how how much time you put into all these cookbooks that you've. <laughs> I mean, that's insane. Uh, it, it is. Yeah. It sometimes <laughs> seems, you know, when you say, "Oh, I'm going to write a cookbook," when yeah. I did my first one, I thought, mm-hmm. "Oh, I'm going to write a cookbook," but mm-hmm. you don't realize how much work it is. Yeah, uh, to do it is it's quite tedious and it takes mm-hmm. a lot of time and a lot of care and a lot of love to do it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, definitely. Could you tell us the process of making your cookbooks? Sure. Um, Actually, when I first did the Chesapeake one, um, it was kind of crazy. I had a restaurant out in Berkeley, California Mm -hmm. uh, that was called Gertie's Chesapeake Bay Cafe. And um, when I opened that, that was in 1983, we had this guy that was a great customer and he came every week and um, he owned a publishing company or he had just started a publishing company that was specific for cookbooks. Mm -hmm. And in those days, Berkeley was known as the gourmet ghetto. Uh, <laughs> Alice Waters, Chez Panisse, uh, Bruce Adels, uh, Jonathan Waxman, all, you know, all the, the early culinary stars of America, we were all working there. So anyway, this guy would come to me every, um, every week and say, John, you should write a cookbook on the Chesapeake Bay. There, there aren't any. You should write one. I'm working. I'm a chef. I'm in the mm-hmm. midst of things. Mm-hmm. I said, I can't do that. Yeah. So he kept working on me for years. And finally, I took a sabbatical and I came back here. Um, I wrote a proposal for him. So that's that's the first thing that if you're going to try to get published is to do a proposal so that you could send that off to a publishing company or to a literary agent kind of person. And even if you didn't do that, the proposal helps you clarify what you have in your mind, mm-hmm. you know, Because I think sometimes we have great ideas, but until we sit down and we start putting them down on paper and seeing what is what, you know, you're not quite sure. So anyway, that's the first part of it um, was that. And then the second part was, well, I got accepted. They said, yeah, we want you to write a cookbook. Now, that was the frightening part because then (laughs) I had to write a cookbook. So I came back from California to Baltimore, actually, and I spent nine months here, but I had a car and I drove up and down the Chesapeake Bay, 200 miles north to south and did interviews, kind of like you do. I mean, I talked to people and, and I heard their stories and I got recipes from all kinds of different areas throughout the entire bay. Because each region has a different style of cooking and a different tradition. So anyway, in any cookbook, whatever that would be, you're doing your research. Mm -hmm. And research is very, very important. Um, So then then I would do that. Then you have to figure out a balance. So Mm -hmm. I probably came up with, on that trip, 
three or four hundred recipes. Oh my gosh! Now you can't put three or four hundred <laughs> recipes in the book, um, and they would usually be, often be lopsided because when I ask people for recipes. A lot of times they might give me a crab soup or something, mm-hmm. and then they give me 10 desserts. Mm-hmm. Everybody loves desserts. So you're, it's easy to get dessert recipes <laughs> given to you from people. Um, but you do have to balance. Otherwise, yeah. it's a dessert cookbook. Yeah. So again, that's what uh, the next sorting process is, is to try to balance it. So you're getting a, a good overview of different aspects of whatever topic that you're doing. Um, then you actually have to write the recipes and I would do everything on like a legal pad, uh, write it down. And my sister and I did a lot of the testing. Um, and I had a couple other friends who did some of the testing. And then once we were relatively secure about what we had there, that's when I would then write the recipe and it would actually go into the computer and, um, I just plowed through those, um, But I also think that cookbooks are storybooks and the recipes are part of the story. But to have a nice little intro to the recipe, to see where it came from or what you thought about it, engages the reader and you want to engage the reader. That's that's why we do this. Um, So anyway, so you got that done. Eventually, you get it off to back to your publisher and you're thinking, oh, my God, thank God that's done. And then you start the editing process Mm. have you ever had a root canal um if you've ever had a root canal or a lot of dental work that's what Mm. it's like because Mm. it is a painstaking (laughs) piece by piece by piece Mm. thing working on the whole thing so that can take quite some time then after they do that then they send you um like galleys of what it's going to look like then you can make changes then they send you page proofs and then it goes away. It just goes away for maybe six months oh or a gosh. year. And then all of a sudden, one day in a package comes the book. Mm. And it's like you gave birth after <laughs> all that time. And, and then the book comes. But it's not over then either, because then you have to start to promote the book. Mm-hmm. Um, because it doesn't do any good if nobody knows what you did. So usually the <laughs> publishing company or your agent these days, you know, you get a good social media person to work with you, and uh, then you do. You would be doing podcasts just like we're doing today to talk mm-hmm. about the the books or radio shows, television shows, uh, demos in front of large groups of people, and so it's a major, major, major uh, project to do a book. But um, sounds like it. <laughs> a- after it's all done, and after you get through it. You know, you, then you can sit back and say, "Ah, oh, that was that was really nice." <laughs> <laughs> How long did, did that take? What is, is that like a year or so? A little more? Well, I, I mean, probably Chesapeake Bay cooking, uh-huh. uh, the main one, the first one that I did, mm-hmm. took me about two years between wow. research, writing, editorial kinds of stuff like that. It was about yeah, eighteen months, twenty-four months, something. So it, uh-huh. it, it's a significant amount of time. That's crazy. Wow. How many recipes were in the first one? I think there were about 220. Wow. <laughs> wow. Yeah, yeah. I think there I think there were about 220 in the first one. It was that, that was a big I mean because again, I was new to the business yeah. and I was so excited about it. I wanted to do everything <laughs> that I found. Yeah. And uh uh probably if I had to 
do it over again, I think I would have probably tried to keep it more, you know, like about a hundred recipes, but, um, <laughs> yeah, we live and we learn. <laughs> yeah. Obviously you're definitely in the business now. You have great recognition. Jose Andreas, uh, he wrote a, uh, nice little passage about your book. Yeah, that uh, was very nice. That, that, he's, he's such he's an awesome. amazing man. Amazing man. He really is, yeah. Are you guys friends or Well, I know I know him. Mm. Um and you know, we we had talked about hopefully getting together, but this was before COVID and uh, uh but I follow everything that he does. He's amazing. Yeah. He's like one of my culinary heroes. Really? Awesome. Can you talk a little bit about the farmers that you work with uh in your restaurant? Sure. When I came back to Baltimore, I grew up here, um, mm-hmm. but when I, I lived in California for almost 20 years um, and had three restaurants out there. But when I came back here, the first thing that I did was I made my way to the 32nd Street Waverly Farmers Market. And I started talking to people. I started meeting farmers. Um, and, and as I said earlier, you know, some of my relatives are farmers. Uh, in Baltimore County. And um, when I was in Berkeley, it was just a given mm-hmm. that we knew everybody that we that we bought from or who they grew or whatever. And so I had, that's what I was going to do when I got here. Um, mm-hmm. It wasn't as easy uh, because there weren't as many farmers doing that and yeah. selling to restaurants. But I did it uh, as a farm by farm project. Um, I met People, you know, like um, Dave Smith from Springfield Farms uh, was one of the first guys that came wrapping at my back door, kitchen door, and uh, brought in these beautiful free-range eggs. And mm. this was 22 years ago. Wow. And um, then through him and through the people at the farmer's market, I just built this wonderful relationship of, of, of so many farmers and producers, you know, both, you know, farmers and artisan producers. Mm-hmm. And they're like my family now, you know, we, we, I know them, they know me so well. I know their children. I know everything, you know, about them. So the, the beauty, the beautiful thing about that for me is that I know, and my, my guys, my team at the restaurant, I try to get them to come with me. We take farm visits you have a total different appreciation of, let's say, even a bunch of radishes. Mm-hmm. And when you taste them and they're bursting with flavor and you know the people that grew them. Yeah. Um, when you're working with bushels of kale, uh, when it comes in, you don't take it for granted. It's mm-hmm. not some obscure you know, piece of ever. It's, it's yeah. something that means something to you. You know, the work that yeah. went into it, the care that went into it, the love that went into it. So it, it's a whole different appreciation of, of cooking. And so we have a whole group of farmers, you know, um, mm-hmm. Joan Norman from One Straw Farm. Uh, we work with um, Charlottetown Farm, which is a goat cheese uh we work with uh, black rock orchard Uh, i mean i could go on i have (laughs) this list that goes on and on and on but we have them for all kinds of specific things we work with local um ice cream makers i mean we make a lot of our own ice creams at gertrude's but i also like to support people who are doing good work and are good artists and food makers like Hex Ferment does beautiful yeah. things. They're kimchi, they're sauerkrauts, they're all those kinds of things. Yeah, I can do them in the restaurant. And sometimes it's fun for a special. Mm-hmm. But 
back in the, um, I think it was the 1950s, there was a, a secretary of agriculture. And I think you might have read about it in my new book, Ed Butts, who um, the idea for farmers across America was you either get big or you get out. And that's when we lost most of our farmers. That's mm. where industrial uh, farming came to the forefront. And so all these little towns around the Chesapeake that were vested in farming and seafood, little by little, those towns died. Mm. And you see just remnants of those places. And so over these last 20 some years with more and more young people going into farming, a lot of young mm. people are going into farming. We're seeing urban farming and we're seeing the local cheesemakers and we're seeing winemakers and we're seeing whiskey makers. Um, what we're doing right now, what I've seen happen over the last 20 some years, we are rebuilding our local food economy. Mm. We're rebuilding it. Because every time you go, your mom goes, I go to work with any of these people, we're putting money into their pockets. That money goes into their community. It rebuilds their towns, their schools. Um, it is so important. Mm. And sometimes we get overwhelmed. Well, how can I do it? Well, you do it by making relationships with those farmers, by going to farmers markets, by buying local. That is how we rebuild our local Chesapeake food economy. And so I am so fortunate, so blessed to have the most wonderful group of farmers and producers that anybody could ever want. But there's always new ones coming in. Yeah. So it's so terribly exciting. We're living in a very exciting time here mm. in Baltimore, in Maryland, and in the Chesapeake. Yeah, awesome. Yeah, that's great. I was just down at the 32nd Street Farmer's Market last or last Saturday. Yeah, it's it's a great market. There's a ton of awesome people. There, there are. Yeah, you mentioned Black Rock uh, Orchard. In the summer, I got some of their peaches. Oh my god, just bursts of flavor. Oh my Aren't god. they good? Oh, oh my god, amazing. so they good. really are. Yeah, I wish it. I wish it was summer right now, so I could have made the peach cake with like fresh peaches. But you know, <laughs> still we good. do what we we do what we can. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Uh, so going back to your grandma, I read that your grandmother like has a huge impact on you. Can you talk about her? Yeah. Well, you know, I think. You know, when I listen to a number of different radio shows, podcasts, read articles about chefs over and over again, you hear how much either mothers or grandmothers, yeah. a lot of the time the grandmothers were yeah. the ones that had um, such influence. And, and my grandmother, Gertie, was very much like that. I, I was hung out by her side and um, she, um, she worked with her church, which um, was on Greenmount Avenue and uh, 22nd Street. Uh, St. Anne's Church. And back in the olden days, uh, they would do what they called businessmen's lunches. Mm -hmm. And she and a whole group of ladies would work in this huge industrial kind of kitchen down in the church hall um, mm -hmm. basement. And uh, I would work with them. And <laughs> it, it was so much fun. I was just, I probably was younger than you at that mm -hmm. time. And um, I hung out with them and listened to the stories. I watched what they were doing. I heard the excitement because it was always exciting because it was like mm -hmm. running a restaurant, but just for one day. Yeah. <laughs> and you had a time crunch and time frame. And um, so that's really where I got a lot of love for 
um, making food for people. But my grandmother also, she had this innate sense of nature, um, even in the city. I mean, she would go to all the municipal markets and, and, and our cousins who were farmers would send things to us. And she also loved things like when it was getting time for the spring to come and asparagus was going to happen, mm -hmm. she would get so excited <laughs> about the asparagus coming and we would get it and she would look at it and we would sit and look closely at it. <laughs> and then she would, you know, just gingerly snap off the ends just where, from where it was tough to where it was tender. Mm -hmm. And she had this reverence for it because, you know, you couldn't get asparagus year round. Yeah. In Chesapeake, it's just a short, yeah. short growing season. And she gave me this appreciation that sometimes it's okay to delay gratification. Mm. We can't have everything we want right now. Yeah. So it made me look forward to the spring because I knew I was going to have asparagus. It made me look forward to the late spring when strawberries would come in for that two, three, four weeks. That's all we mm. had then. Um, it would give me great appreciation for we got melons at the height of the season in the summer, and they were so sweet mm. and so juicy, but I didn't get them the rest of the year. Mm. So it made you appreciate every season. And she taught me that. And, mm. you know, she did. She gave me a great love and a great reverence for food. And I could see so early on how it nurtured people. And I think when we're cooks and when we cook for someone, whether it's professionally or in our homes, it is an act of love. I mean, we're caring for people. Um, if you look at the name hospitality, um, the, the root word of that comes from hospice. Mm -hmm. um, they were way stations as people, pe pilgrims or travelers were making their way in, in medieval Europe. They would go to these places and they would be taken care of. Mm. People would feed them, protect them. So I think that's what we do in, in food and when we cook. And, and my grandmother gave me a great foundation in that. And, and, and I, you know, she's forever in my heart. Yeah, I mean, it tastes so much better like when you have to wait for it uh, to come in season. Yeah, you're right. So uh, what kinds of things did you make with her um, when you were like a kid? With Gertie, um, we made, well, I mean, I usually, since when I was really young with her, I mean, I would get it, uh, she'd give me a whole um, bushel of string beans and I'd have to do the string beans <laughs> or um, shuck the corn or, you know, husk the corn. Um, but I used to like um, making soups with her and I still do. That's one of my favorite things mm. to do. Um, so we would make um, a lot of vegetable soups. Uh, we made crab soup a lot. Um, and, you know, the family would have crab feasts. And so she would save um, a lot of the shells and make a stock out of that. Mm -hmm. And then if there was leftover crabs, we would pick all the meat um, to put that in there uh, as well. Um, she also was a great baker and I loved to bake. Um, I loved her pies, um, you know, especially fruit pies. They were just, mm -hmm. you know, just so wonderful. And she made homemade rolls and homemade bread. I love bread too. Bread is just... Mm. awesome um because it's like magic oh yeah you know you you whether you're using a, a sourdough starter mm -hmm. or whether you're using a fresh yeast it's it comes to life 
Yeah. And it's like, it's like growing a plant almost, you know, it's like magic. It comes to life. So Gertie was great with that. And I love, love making things like that. Um, she also, she would make, um, just for special occasions, she would make sour broughton, um, you know, like sour beef and dumplings. Mm. And she'd get like a rump roast and she would marinate it for days and days and days and all these <laughs> spices. And, um, and then she would slow braise it mm. and make a, and she would thicken the gravy with crushed ginger snaps. And um, then she would make potato dumplings, these big fluffy potato dumplings. And so you'd have this um, sweet and sour beef with the gravy on it. And then you would put gravy You're all me hungry. over <laughs> the top of these potato dumplings. And uh, it's just those things always stuck with me um, of, of, of cooking with Gertie. <laughs> You're really making me hungry. That your descriptions just <laughs> are awesome. <laughs> okay. Uh, yeah. So a lot of people don't know that you were actually a musician. You played piano, right? I did. Yeah. Do you still play? Um, a little bit. You know, when I I don't have as much time <laughs> these days to do it, but now and then I'll uh, sit down and 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 do my scales. <laughs> 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 but yeah, I like playing the piano and um, did it and wrote music for a while. Mm. And I actually, um, when I, I moved from here up to Cape Cod when I was young, after I had gotten out of high school, I was just finishing college. And I went up to Cape Cod to be a musician. Mm. And while I was up there, a friend of mine who's also from Baltimore, um, he, he slipped, fell on the ice and broke his... Um, ankle and he was the sous chef at the province town inn which then was the largest resort in new england and he called me he said you got to go up and work for me <laughs> and i said i don't know how to do that he said just go <laughs> so i did so i did i went up and of course they didn't make me sous chef mm -hmm. um they made me a prep cook and they threw me in peeling garlic on my first day <laughs> and um yeah i think i've been doing it for 47 years now so music took me to Cape Cod, and then Cape Cod gave me um, the gift of getting into the uh, culinary business. <laughs> that, that's awesome. Wow. So uh, are you still friends with him? <laughs> um, no, he, no, I'm only in our dreams. He passed away some years uh, ago, but uh, but he's, he, he's my godfather of cooking. Wow. Yeah. <laughs> Can you talk about, like, the chefs that taught you? Well, yeah. Yeah. Um, so when I was, like I said, uh, first I was up in, in Cape Cod and I worked with um, a number actually of European chefs there. Mm -hmm. And it, it was kind of like, it was, it wasn't kind of like, it was an apprenticeship program. Uh, um, so I worked there um, for quite a number of years and worked in all sorts of different positions and disciplines. Um, then I moved to New York and I worked there. Um, again, did some apprenticeship work. Then I went out to California and I got into this very small restaurant called A La Carte. And um, the now star chef, Jonathan Waxman, was running that at that time. And um, so I started there and then he moved to, to L.A. And I worked with another European chef there, but eventually I took over and it became my, my, uh, my show. And then I opened two other restaurants. Um, so really the way that I learned was working in some larger restaurants mm -hmm. uh, as an apprentice. Mm -hmm. And uh, people were sometimes patient, sometimes not patient. <laughs> uh, 
but but it was a great experience. It was just a, a phenomenal experience. And one of the best one was that small rest French restaurant I was talking about, a la carte in Berkeley. Mm-hmm. Um, we only had, I think, 10 tables mm-hmm. and we changed the menu every single day. Mm-hmm. So there were two appetizers, a soup and a composed appetizer, um, two entrees. One would be either a meat or a poultry or bow, and then the seafood and then two desserts. So I had to change that menu every single day. I'd have to start shopping at 5 a.m., buying everything. They didn't deliver. I went everywhere and got everything. Wow. Uh, Came back to the restaurant, made everything from scratch, everything from scratch, then served it that night. Wow. And then had to start all over again the next day. Oh my God. Now that was a culinary exercise like you couldn't believe. <laughs> and I did it for quite quite a number of years before wow. I opened a larger restaurant. That must have been tiring. Yeah. It was tiring. It was tiring. <laughs> but so creative. And it, yeah. again, it was in Berkeley in the uh, uh, 70s. <laughs> and uh, everything was happening there. Everybody was in love with food. <laughs> Staying in California, uh, your first restaurant, as you mentioned, Gertie's Chesapeake Bay Cafe. Can you talk about the experience and how that like shaped you as a chef? Um, yeah. Well, when I when I was getting ready to open my own restaurant, I wasn't sure what I wanted to do. Everybody thought that I would do kind of a California Nouvelle, mm-hmm. um, you know, because French was my background with cooking. And um, I thought about it and I thought, you know, I want to do the food that I grew up with, the food that I loved. Yeah. Um, and just about that time, local, regional American cuisines were coming into their own. So in the Bay Area, um, there were New Orleans restaurants, there were New England-style restaurants, and I thought, I'm going to do something from the Chesapeake. Hmm. So I did um, open up Gertie's Chesapeake Bay Cafe, and people loved it. I mean, they yeah. absolutely loved it. And I brought in, wasn't an environmentally friendly thing to do in those days, but I flew in a lot of the product from the Chesapeake, from my contacts here, people that I knew in the seafood business. And um, even in the summer, I would, would, you know, have corn sent to me because I never thought the California corn was as good as the Maryland corn. (laughs) And uh, I was a bit of a snob in that sense. Um, So... So anyway, uh, it, it was just a great thing. And it put a real nice spotlight on the Chesapeake Bay. And so many people were interested and excited about it. And um, it sort of gave me the platform for what I'm doing now. You know, and it all kind of happened by sort of accident. You know, I thought, yeah. well, maybe people will like it. Well, they did. And then because of that, that's how I got to do the cookbook. And then because of that, I ended up coming back here and I have a restaurant in an art museum. So mm-hmm. it's, um, you know, it all is just a gradual thing and nothing was really thought out too much. I just mm-hmm. generally take things as they come to me and try to enjoy it. <laughs> awesome. So obviously we're still in California. Um, can you talk about like the differences between like being in Baltimore and California, like the East Coast, West Coast, coastal cooking? Okay. Well, interesting thing about California, it never had a cuisine per se. Okay. I mean, it's a new state. Um, it's a huge state. It's like several countries all rolled into one. <laughs> and um, so the prevailing model then, then was 
in all the fancy restaurants or all the restaurants of any note, I would say it was either French, Mediterranean, really influenced most of those restaurants in those days in the 60s, 70s, and early 80s. Mm-hmm. And they would call it a California Nouvelle. So it was taking local ingredients. And usually we did know most of the people who were making all, all the product or growing the product and um, presenting it in a very light French technique. No heavy sauces. Mm-hmm. Um, it was kind of thinking outside of the box. It was very artistic. Um, Almost any of the chefs that you would maybe recognize or people would recognize that came from California, the big names from those times, no one had ever gone to culinary school. Mm. Everyone had degrees in philosophy, in music, in fine arts. But what they had was a love and a dedication to food. So those sensibilities sort of all came together. We had permission to experiment, permission to, you know, do what we want. I think one of the other great aspects of being in, especially in the Bay Area, it's one of the largest Asian communities Hmm. outside of China. And so the influences of Asian food, um, ingredients, uh, cooking very quickly, Mm -hmm. um, keeping things text with a texture that's crisp and fresh really played into the whole thing and so you could bring those types of ingredients in and sort of weave them and layer them in so it was really an exciting exciting time in those days here in baltimore we were still kind of stuck in mm-hmm. you know kind of a traditional heavier Uh, more formal things. That's totally changed now. Mm -hmm. I mean, that's turned around. That was a 360. But those were the biggest differences during that time. So does, you mentioned Asian uh, cuisine, does that like influence your restaurant at Gertrude's at all in any way? It does. Many of the um, recipes that we do there, we do a five spice chicken that's uh, influenced from uh, Vietnam. Um, my second in command at Gertie's in California, her name was Lon. We called her Mama Lon. She was from Saigon. She had several restaurants in Saigon before the fall of during the war. Mm. And uh, she taught me. She was like my West Coast mother. Mm. And um, she taught me a lot about um, techniques and um, flavors and those kinds of sensibilities. So we do that. Um, you know Asia food on York Road here near Belvedere Square. And oh. um, anyway, it has a great selection of, of Asian food. It's like the best source that I can come up with since I lived in California. And so we do try to I, I incorporate a lot of those different flavors into things that we make at the restaurant, especially soups and specials. Mm, that's really cool. Yeah, obviously, if, if, if people don't know. Uh, you're the host of two PBS shows. Yeah. Uh, Chesapeake Bay Cooking and uh, Coastal Cooking with John Shields. That was another thing. I'm telling you, I never know what I'm going to do. And I walk <laughs> from one thing into another. So um, after I had released um, the first book, Chesapeake Bay Cooking, I was in California, still living in California. And I would fly back here all the time to do promotion, radio shows, this and that and the other. And this woman who um, worked WBL 
radio. Her name was Elaine Stein. I was on her show a number of times and she knew a bunch of people. And she said, you should be doing a television show. <laughs> and I said, I can't do a television show. I live in California. She goes, you need to be doing one. So anyway, she introduced me to some folks at Maryland Public Television. And it, it took years because I you know, still had a restaurant in California. Yeah. But eventually I moved back here and I um, started doing that, that show. Mm. And the show was, um, it came from the first cookbook. Because mm. when I did all that traveling and met all those people, I knew that this was more than a cookbook. Mm. It was chronicling a way of life. And it was a way of life that was rapidly disappearing. So I thought, wouldn't it be cool to be able to chronicle this, to get this down? Mm -hmm. And so that first series of just Big Bay Cooking was really amazing because we went out on the road. We went back to all these little small towns. Mm -hmm. We would be down near Norfolk, Virginia and Virginia Beach and Southern Maryland and, um, you know, up on the Upper Eastern Shore and all over the place to tell the story of the Chesapeake, but through the words of the people that lived there, they were my hosts. They were my kind of co-host for each episode. I wasn't, didn't want to pontificate and say, Oh, well, this is what it is. I want to hear it from the people who live it, who breathe yeah. it. And um, so that was one of the great, you know, when I look back on my life, that was one of the things that I'm most proud of hmm. to have gotten that down for posterity um, you know, sort of a legacy of the Chesapeake. And then after I did that one, it was pretty popular. It got picked up all over the country. And um, then we did one called um, Coastal Cooking because I was always interested. I lived in California. I lived in New England. I was I love coastal areas. I'm mm -hmm. always on the water. So I thought it would be really cool to go around and look at local regional cuisines. And that's what we did. We went all over the uh, coastal United States and told stories. And that is a lot of work, too. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's awesome. So let's talk about the pandemic and how it's affecting the restaurant industry. Well, it's been, as you know, um, tremendously difficult time. And it's been really hard on everyone. Mm -hmm. um, those first months, you know, I was devastated and, and really devastated because of all my people that I work with, yeah. um, people in the restaurant, um, our suppliers, um, it affects so many people yeah. and not just people, but their families as well. And so, you know, I take it extraordinarily seriously. Mm -hmm. And, um, so we were closed, you know, for like four months mm -hmm. and then we reopened and like all other restaurants, you have to reinvent yourself. Yeah. Um, you had to streamline things. You had to roll with openings and closings and what's safe and what's not safe. Uh, so many unknowns. Um, and yeah. we have done that quite a number of times now. Right now, we're just doing carry out, curbside carry out um, for the time being. And obviously, you know, you can't uh, you can't sustain a restaurant uh, large. I, I don't know whether large or small. Um, on just carry out. So you yeah. have to kind of get as creative as you can. Um, and it's an ongoing crisis. And, yeah. um, you know, you have a lot of great people who are coming together to try to help. You know, we've been we've worked with a number of different agencies so that we can get additional food or resources to our people or we can try to give things to other 
the restaurant community is, is, is really good and, and the local community is really good in, in coming together to try to help and support each other. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's difficult. And yeah. we don't really have an end in sight right now. Mm-hmm. Um, we're hopeful that in the spring, things will start to reemerge. There, there are a lot of unknowns. And, you know, um, we, we really got, as an industry, our industry was one of the hardest hit industries yeah. for this pandemic. And um, I think we were woefully uh, neglected um, mm, from a government uh, standpoint, um, just left left out to dry and left out to die. And we've lost a lot of restaurants. It appears that there is some more stimulus money coming. And that's really important. That's what we need. You know, that's what we need. This is a public health crisis. And um, we need to do what's safe. We do need to do what's safe. But you also don't want to see all these magnificent businesses and people, you know, lose everything. So it's a story that's still playing out. But the beautiful part of the story is that I've seen so many people rise to the occasion yeah. and and get out there and really try to help and help each other. So we're not over it yet. You know, yeah. we're still pushing forward and coming up with new ideas constantly. Um, but I'm looking forward to sometime later in this year that we can start to reemerge as a restaurant that we were and to welcome people back and be that part of the community because i miss that so terribly much yeah we definitely have to just support our restaurants order carry out people <laughs> uh speaking of supporting restaurants um do you have any like favorite baltimore restaurants besides your restaurant of course <laughs> oh god i love i love all of them i mean you could go down the you could go down the list of um of, of restaurants especially all up in um north baltimore um you know uh i go to all the time um one of my one of my favorite and, and one of my favorite chefs um, is Irina Stein from Alma, um, mm. Alma Cucina Latina. Mm-hmm. And uh, they've just moved up to um, uh, Station North okay. and uh, just open, opened up there. And they're, they're near Orto, which is one of my all-time favorites. I love that. And, uh, but there are just so many, I mean, all, all around town. <laughs> and I try to go to different ones all the time and, and with carryout, you yeah. know. Um, I try, you know, every week to get a different carry out um, yeah. besides my own. Uh. <laughs> <laughs> awesome. Okay. Do you have any uh, advice for me as I'm learning to become a chef? Cook. That's <laughs> um, a good one. Um, and, you know, you have a natural affinity, I believe, for cooking. And so the best thing to do is stay close to food. Um, go to the farmer's market, talk to farmers, okay. um, do internships. You know a lot of restaurateurs. You can talk to me anytime you want to come and do an internship. Awesome. It's really important to be around the food. Mm-hmm. Then you can get educated. Mm-hmm. But I've seen too many times people who have just seen cooking on television mm-hmm. and they think, oh, my God, that's really cool. Yeah. I'm going to culinary school. But they've never cooked. Mm. they've never spent time in restaurants and then they spend all the time going to the culinary school, get out. And once they get into the restaurant, they see it's not most on a day to day basis. It's not glamorous. It's hard, dirty, sweaty work. Yeah. It's repetitive work, Mm -hmm. but we make people happy and it's a subculture of people. And if you hadn't gone and worked in restaurants 
you might not like that subculture. Yeah. So I always encourage any young aspiring chefs, get in there. Just get in there and do it. You know, whenever you have uh, a break in school, see if you can get into a restaurant um, just to be there, to see it, to feel it, to touch it, to do it all. So that's what I would suggest to you. Awesome. And, and I'm you. sure you're going you're gonna to do great. <laughs> Thank you. Uh, do you have any plugs uh, for Gertrude's, I don't know, cookbook? Well, Gertrude's, um, I mean, I can always plug Gertrude's is just <laughs> because, you know, we, we are a showcase of regional Chesapeake cuisine. We happen to be at the Baltimore Museum of Art. Mm -hmm. So you can, you can have quite the experience of different art exhibits. And I look at, you can go up um, to the Cone Collection and see the largest collection of Matisse in the world, or you can come down to Gertrude's as well. And that's a culinary exhibit. So uh, you can get all your culture and food and conviviality all in one place. So uh, I always invite people to come over and see us there. And uh, we love we love to visit. Awesome. Uh, any social media social media plugs? Um, let's see. Well, we do have. <laughs> <laughs> you got the wrong one here. Um, <laughs> I think it's Gertrude's Baltimore is like the Facebook, and Gert Balt um, is like Instagram. So we are on Facebook. We're on Instagram. Um, we're we're on just about everything, and I have lovely. A uh, woman that I work with, um, Kristen Riley, who do works, does our social media, and she's amazing. And uh, as long as I talk to her, give her a lot of pictures, you send lots of pictures and tell her what's going on, uh, she gets the message out there. Thank you very much for joining us. Great having you on. Uh, nice little chat. Sammy, it, was my, it really was my pleasure. It was really, <laughs> really my pleasure. <laughs> awesome. Thank you very much for taking the time to listen to this episode of Hey Chef. Next time, I will be back with two Baltimore chefs, Chef Katina Smith and Chef Kaya Gibeon. They started a new business together called Our Time Kitchen that will provide prep space for women-owned food startups. You will learn about this new venture and their individual culinary beginnings. Be sure to subscribe to this podcast and leave us a review. Follow us on Instagram at HeyChefPodcast and tell your friends about us. Our website is wypr.org forward slash programs forward slash hey-chef. This podcast is brought to you by CCBC Student Life's New Media Collective, CCBC's Communication and Media Studies Department, and the Andrew W. Mellon Foundation. Produced by Beth Bonnet and Brian Kim. Artwork by Sammy Bonnet and Shannon Design. Theme music by 905 Productions. Thank you to WYPR 88.1 FM, Baltimore's number one news talk station, and WYPR senior producer Bob White for being our studio engineer. 